Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hey! And today, we are going to be bringing you a patient select episode. This is going to be the murder of Dr. Helene Kanabe, or Kanab. It's said like five different ways. Please forgive me. Helene. That is what I'm going to say the rest of this episode. <laughs> If you are new here, hello and welcome. If you are returning Spookster, welcome back. We are happy to have you. Thank you so much to our $10 patron, Allison, for choosing this topic because until you suggested it for your episode, I had never heard of this case and I don't think Jessica had either. Have you? Had not. No. Had not. So she's totally ready for a story. If you would like to hang out with us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. We also have our great Facebook group. That's Three Spooked Girls Official. Hang out with us there. Or if you would like to just head to the show notes, you can go to Linktree and all of our socials, Patreon, all of that great stuff. Our website, our merch is all there for you. But speaking of Patreon, if you would like to support the show, you can head down there or you can go to patreon.com slash three spooked girls. You can have your very own episode like we are doing now. Starting as little as a dollar, you get a bonus episode each and every month. Two and up, get two more bonus episodes from Slaughters, which is Jessica's fun segment over there. It's totally fun. It is. It's great. And then in the future, we will be bringing you another video segment that will be talking about all kinds of paranormal spooky stuff. And I had said in our Monday episode on the Dybbuk box that I have no clue what to call it yet. If anyone has any suggestions, feel free. I'm also, fun fact, going to be bringing you different coffee suggestions as I try new stuff because I love coffee. As you all know, I can drink it literally any time of day. So spooky haunted items and coffee. Someone be creative for me because I am not right now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all kinds of fun stuff happening over on Patreon that you can definitely check out. Our tiers range from a dollar, two dollars and five, ten, go on up and all kinds of cool stuff. But that's really it. So I'm going to just dive into this case that Allison sent us. And thank you again, Allison. We appreciate your support. We always appreciate you interacting with us on watch parties and live streams and all of that. You are amazing. So Helene was born on December 22nd, 1875 in another word I'm going to pronounce wrong, Rugenwald, Germany. This was an area that was previously known as Prussia and would later become a city in Poland under the name of Darlow. Sorry, guys. It's a coastal area that's right next to the Baltic Sea. So Helene's father was a civil engineer and his job was building bridges right there in the Baltic Sea ports. 
the mom wasn't in the picture. I'm pretty positive I had read she kind of like dipped out kind of thing. But growing up, Helene loved the outdoors. She loved nature. She, of course, loved the sea because, you know, her dad's job was like right there in it all the time. And she also loved German literature. She did come from a modest upbringing, being with a single dad and all, but didn't let that stop her dreams that she had as she became an adult. Because as you will learn, she's a boss ass bitch and she did a lot of fucking trailblazer things for the time. So she wanted to go to medical school, but of course, in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Germany, that wasn't a thing. Women were not allowed. She would find out from her cousin Augustine, who lived in the States, that women could actually, in fact, go to medical school there. So she began saving up her money to move to Indiana, where her cousin was. Eventually, she would save up and be able to make the voyage on November 16th of 1896. And she would first arrive into New York City. And then from there, she would take the two-day trip to arrive in Indianapolis. And like I said, this is where her cousin was and also Augustine's stepfather, Fran Krop, and his son, Carl, who is 22 years old. Helene would move into a boarding house with Augustine where she was living. And then there in the States, Augustine taught German at local public schools and Franz was a laborer. Like he just did labor work with like a union, I think. So after settling in, Helene enrolled at Butler College in Irvington. Here she would take courses on pathology during the summer of 1900. And from there, she would be accepted into the Medical College of Indiana or MCI. And while she was there, it was required of her and, you know, all students to attend the classes, dissect every body part of the cadavers that they had, maintain at least a 75% grade in all classes. So, of course, like a C, you know, C, C plus. And they couldn't drink. We would have been kicked out. Yes, we would have. And they worked 14-hour days. Some sources said that that job was as a nurse, which, you know, makes sense because they go through, like, their clinicals and whatnot. But if that wasn't enough, while she was in medical school and doing all this other stuff, she actually continued her job as a seamstress to bring in some, like, extra income for herself. Along with that, she apparently was like a very skilled artist. Uh, I saw a drawing or two of hers and they were really good. They were so good. She actually had them in some medical textbooks and they were sketches for like anatomy, surgery procedures and pathology slides and things like that. Also, while she was getting her education, she was selected to teach courses to underclassmen by the director of pathology. And fun fact, she was the only student who was selected for this or did this, and she became the curator for the pathology lab while still a student. Get it, woman. Definitely. She would go on to graduate on April 23rd, 1904, and she was actually one of two women in her whole graduating class. After graduation, she continued on as a professor and also the curator at that college in the lab. Now we're going to jump ahead a little bit. So we're going to go into 1905 and her badassery continues. So this year, she would become the first woman in Indiana to become an assistant deputy state health officer. She was considered to be an expert on rabies prevention. It was said that she actually improved the method of diagnosing rabies, not only in animals, but humans, too. I guess this was like a big issue in that area then. So they were really trying to work to, you know, getting that under control. Now, one of her suggestions she made was that 
for them to make it so all dogs had to be in a muzzle for two years so that it would help eliminate the rabies spreading and eventually die out. Obviously, not a lot of people liked this, so it was said that this did kind of cause her to get some enemies with her standpoint on that. Also during this time, she had been promoted to superintendent, but would end up resigning because she was essentially demanding equal pay as her male colleagues, and they wouldn't give it to her. Because as you can imagine how that conversation probably went, because um, here we are over 100 years later, and we're still having that conversation. So there's that. When she resigned, she actually ended up contacting the newspaper about it. And then she when she put in all her paperwork to for her resignation, the reason she listed was discrimination and broken promises. Snap. Get it. You tell those fuckers. After her resignation, she decided to open up her own practice. It is said that she, quote, insisted on having a phone installed in her apartment in case a patient needed her. She would always answer a knock or a call regardless of the hour. Quite often, she would treat people for free or accept payments via the barter system. This is how she acquired piano and lessons to go with it. I mean, hey, that was how they did things. So, you know. I give you some antibiotics. You teach me how to play piano. There we go. She would also go on to become the medical director and associate professor of physiology and hygiene at the Normal College of the National American Gymnastics Union. And because there's more, she was appointed by the chair of hematology and parasitology. Oh, God. Sorry, guys. At the Indiana Veterinary School in 1909 by Dr. William Craig, who was the dean of students and pocket him for a little later. But if, uh, you know, that wasn't enough. We got more stuff that she did. She had a passion for another aspect of health as well. And that was under the umbrella of sexual health which kind of surprised me because I was like, well, damn, because, you know, it's the early 1900s and she's a woman. So I'm like, I did not expect that. So in terms of the sexual health thing, she was a community speaker and she was also an activist for this topic. Mainly what she focused on was like the prevention and then the diagnosis of STDs. And she also took patients in who, you know, to get treated for them because most doctors do didn't want, I mean, I'm assuming most doctors turn them away. They'd go to Helene and, you know. That's so good. Right? Now, onto the personal side of her. So, to the general public, they thought she was just a single woman, but apparently, according to close friends, she was actually engaged to Dr. Craig. Now, tuck that away again. But it was also said that in a letter to one of her friends, she had mentioned she commissioned a wedding gown and all of that. There was letters of her talking about her relationship and how it wasn't necessarily all sunshine and rainbows. We'll get to that in a minute. But it was definitely a big deal that she was commissioning a dress because she was a skilled seamstress. So obviously she wanted something fancier or whatever kind of thing. So like I said, there's not like a ton on this, unfortunately. So really, that's kind of the background on her. And now I'm just going to go ahead and jump to the day of her murder. So on October 24th, 1911, at 8.15 a.m., her lab assistant, Catherine McPherson, found Helene in her bed covered in blood, her bed soaked in blood, and her throat was slashed from ear to ear. It is said that, quote, the killer was skilled enough to cut her on one side first, missing her carotid artery and cutting deep enough to cause her to choke on her blood. The second cut just nicked her carotid artery and cut into the spine, end quote. And what's so motherfucking frustrating about this is that 
authorities did not take this investigation seriously whatsoever. So the Indy police chief, Martin Highland, he actually tried to say that this was a suicide. And his reason was because, quote, she was large enough to ward off an attacker. She was 5'6 and 150 pounds. Um, that don't mean shit, people. Exactly. And the coroner in this case, good for him. He's like, oh, hell no. That is not what's going on. She did not kill herself. And his name was Charles Durham. Dr. Charles found evidence of defensive wounds and stated that there was no fucking way that she could have given herself this kind of injury. Like, no. And also, the, quote, suicide weapon was nowhere to be found. Why was that gone? Weird. Her ghost took it away? No, that doesn't work that way. And it's also said, kind of similar to when we talked about the Hall Mills murder, how people were, like, parading into the crime scene and, like, touching stuff and moving stuff. That basically happened in this situation, too. So just, like, bad all around. Now, Helene would be buried in an unmarked grave in Crown Hill Cemetery. With their investigation, they did have some suspects. The first was a man named Jefferson Hayes. He worked as a janitor. He was also Helene's downstairs neighbor. He had made a statement that he had thought he heard some screams that night, but didn't check on things because it seemed to have quieted down. Now, this man didn't kill her. He had nothing to do with it. You know, he would get cleared. Now, this next one is a bit ridiculous. So apparently there was some like Greek prince who was mailing letters to someone nearby. So they thought it was him. They were like, he's in the vicinity. He's linked to the vicinity. He did it. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and all of that. And I was just like, no, this is not a like lifetime movie. Please stop. Right. But luckily, Helene's friends saw the bullshit and was like, enough is enough. They decided to take the investigation into their own hands, and they hired a private investigator named Detective Harry Webster. So her friends, they put their money together. They actually ended up raising some money, but they would fall a bit short on the fees for him. But Harry was a good guy. Harry pitched in the rest of what was needed for the investigation and basically did like, I would assume, you know, in my brain, part of it's like pro bono, basically. He took whatever payment they had so he could do the investigation. Now, flash forward 15 months after her murder, Detective Webster finds out some information and evidence, and we have two males that end up being indicted for murder and accessory to murder. The first one was Dr. Craig. Big surprise. And when questioned about their relationship, he denied that they were engaged. He was like, I wanted out of the relationship. Basically, things weren't good and they were about to break up. He's like, hell no, we weren't getting married kind of thing. But it was believed that because he was the dean of the students, he had been a lecturer and he was also a stakeholder in the veterinary college. You know, he would have been very familiar with like all of the medical procedures with animals and things like that. And the reason why that is important, because it said that the sheep's cut was what was used to kill Helene. And he would have been somebody who knew how to do that. Oh. They also, I mentioned their relationship wasn't quite rainbows and sunshine. Apparently, towards close to her death, they had a bit of a riff. So basically, she had went to the school to see about changing her lecture time with Dr. Craig. So like swapping because she had a course to attend over at normal college. 
It said that Dr. Craig just like had a temper and basically got pissed the fuck off when he was like being asked for his answer. And he literally said, quote, oh, fuck, tell her to go to hell and then stormed out of the room like a little titty baby. You called him a titty baby and I died. I just see like this fucking spoiled ass white dude who's a piece of shit. So I'm like, goodbye. (laughs) And then it said the night before Helene died, Dr. Craig's housekeeper overheard them arguing and she heard Helene say, quote, but you can continue to practice and so can I, end quote. And then this circles back to the letter I mentioned earlier, you know, her talking about his temper and whatnot, and she called it his ungovernable temper. She was like, how am I going to marry a person like this? Obviously, she wasn't exactly happy with his ass either. Right. Now we have our second person that I have not talked about. His name was Alonzo Ragsdale. Uh, He was obviously the person that gets charged with accessory to murder. And so a little bit about him. Alonzo was the undertaker and Helene's business associate. Apparently, she would joke with him that when she died, she would make sure to give him the business. And apparently she did because Augusta ended up appointing Alonzo as the undertaker and estate executor. The way he comes in as the accessory is because he was accused of concealing or getting rid of evidence that would incriminate Dr. Craig. And what that was is apparently the kimono robe she had been wearing the night of her murder. He had tried to uh, essentially wash it and get rid of the bloodstains. Got it. Yeah, that's a little suspect. But sadly, the trial went exactly how you think it did, unfortunately. The defense immediately went in attacking Helene's character, saying that she lived an unwomanly lifestyle and that she was aggressive and masculine and, you know, she wasn't like other women during this time. Which, I'm sorry, I see that in a positive way. Yeah. Just saying. They pointed out that at 35, she had an apartment and a private practice rather than having a home and fucking 13 kids and a husband to take care of. It's like, um, if that was a dude, you would say he's accomplished. So go fuck yourself. Eggs fucking exactly. And along with that, they tried to like paint this picture of her that she was like a pauper is what the articles were saying. Basically that she had like a failing business and, you know, she was struggling and things like that. But really it was the opposite. She had a bunch of different streams of revenue coming in. So she was doing good. And Dr. Charles, the coroner, he came in again trying to swoop in with the facts. He said that she was, you know, financially stable, that she was bringing over $150 in per month, which in today's money or close to today's money was roughly about 2600 bucks. But she was good with her money because it didn't come out till like months later that she actually sent most of her extra money back to her uncle, the one we talked about earlier, because he was no longer able to work. So any extra money she had, you know, she wasn't being all like flashy and stuff. She was helping her family out. But, you know, of course, none of this mattered. People wanted to be stupid. But what the sketchy thing is, witnesses started dropping like flies. So the character witnesses who were there, you know, to testify against Dr. Craig magically suddenly moved out of the state or no one could find them. Then there was actually one witness who had ID'd him that, yes, they saw him that night and things like that. But the guy would end up changing his story. So I'm like, what the fuck did this guy do to scare all these people? And then... 
his housekeeper, who had actually signed an affidavit saying she saw him return late that night and leave early with a bundle of clothes, and uh, she apparently refused to come to the courthouse. I don't know what the fuck he was doing, but apparently everybody got scared. So with all of that, as expected, the case just kind of fell apart at that point. And after nine days, the prosecution couldn't make any other kind of connection between Dr. Craig with the murder. So the judge would acknowledge that the prosecution did prove, yes, she was murdered, but they didn't have any actual evidence that it was Dr. Craig that did this. But I'm sorry. Stuff a sketch. His little friendy friend went and tried to wash some of her clothes that she was wearing when she was killed. Just saying. Just saying. So, of course, that would lead to both men being acquitted. And it ended up leaving Helene's murder officially, you know, on the official side, unsolved even to this day, which is so sad. And what else makes it sad is it probably won't ever be opened again because apparently the case file was destroyed in a flood in 1977 at the Indianapolis Marion County Police Department. So it's really, really sad, you know, and then it's also like there's not a lot of media or stuff online, like there's very few substantial articles and whatnot. But if you are kind of interested in this case, there is a book that was written by Nikki Krabowski, and it's called She Sleeps Well, The Extraordinary Life and Murder of Dr. Helene Elise Hermine Kanab or Kanabe. And from what I read, Nikki kind of agrees with the same thought I have that Dr. Craig was the killer. And what was also nice was this author actually purchased a headstone for her grave because she never had one. That's so nice. Yeah. But I believe I mentioned that there is a little bit of a spooky side to things. It's really quick. It's nothing like crazy. But it is said that Helene is rumored to haunt the Indianapolis Anthenaeum. I don't know if I'm even saying that word right. Good Lord. But it was her favorite place to go when she was alive. Like, she literally went every day. Like, she would walk over there every day. That's nice. Right? So it makes sense, you know, because we off air always joke we're going to haunt Disneyland. So, like, I get it. There's tons of reports of there being, like, all kinds of activity at this place. So this place would be kind of cool, I think for like a live stream or something, because it was interesting. But I won't go too deep into that. But our friends over at Ghost Hunters, I say our friends because we just are obsessed with the show. It's fine. Be my friend. Be our friends. (laughs) Someone who knows them, tell them to be our friends. Okay. (laughs) I couldn't find the full episode, sadly. I was really not happy about that. I wanted to watch it all. But I did watch clips, and then I actually found an article that was by their paranormal historian that they have with them on their team. And this is the newer when they kind of rebooted Ghost Hunters. That'll be in the sources page if you want to read the whole thing and see some pictures and stuff. But he said that they did see shadow figures and they picked up all kinds of activity. And then there was actually one in particular that they did think was Helene. So Grant came up with the idea to hire a four-string quartet to play some classical songs from that era. So that way to kind of like help bring up some stuff to happen. Mm -hmm. So then the paranormal historian, his name is Mustafa, him and Brandon, they went in there and they did like their own little investigation and stuff. And I guess they started getting a lot of like activity and stuff off their data logger. I don't know what that means. Basically, like the results and stuff that they got back, they did think it was her. Awesome. So that that was cool. 
And then it's just like they went on about like how it does make sense because it was her favorite place. And then the friends that I talked about earlier that hired the private investigator, they had worked there and she had met them through this place. So that was cool how it kind of just like all tied in, you know. And what's cool about the Athenaeum is that they do really lean into this paranormal aspect. I guess they also have like a theater in there and a lot of activity happens there. Right. And you can do, I don't know if they're seasonal or not. It looked like they were like for October and stuff. You can do your own ghost hunts and they're overnight or they have ghost tours, uh, which when Allison was messaging us about this topic, she kind of talked about that a little bit. You can definitely check that out. It's all on their website and it seems like a really cool place and it ties into our episode here today. So that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That is exciting. Right. But that is going to wrap us up here for today. Allison, thank you so much for sending us over this topic. Neither of us had ever heard of her story before. So we were happy to share that on here. And thank you so much for your support for our show. Thank you, Allison, for being one of our patrons. We really appreciate it. And this was a great story you threw at us. We like when these kind of stories come our way. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's going to go ahead and wrap us up for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back tomorrow for our part two on the Zodiac Killer. And then we'll be back on Monday for part three. Bye. Bye. Bye.